I was recently praying and, and just asking God for wisdom on what I should preach as, as I approached the last few weeks as your pastor. And as I was praying and, and honestly just, just thinking about this wonderful church, there was a phrase that God's Spirit just impressed on me, a phrase on my mind. And this phrase was, who we must be. And as I continue to, to ponder this phrase that God gave me on who we must be, what happened is that this, this final preaching series that I'll have the privilege to proclaim to you, this series began to crystallize and, and to take shape in my mind. And I truly believe that God wants New Life Church. He wants you to push the distractions aside. He wants you, us, this church, to renew her focus on God and to truly become who, who is calling you to be. So who we must be. Over these next few weeks, we're going to be looking at God's word and searching in it and begging his spirit to reveal who God is to us. And may he reveal himself in, in a more real and just more profound way to each one of us. So that when he reveals himself through his word, then we will know who we must be. So New Life Church, do you want to be successful? I really mean that as a question. Do you want to be successful? Now, when I say being successful, what I'm describing is do you want to be successful in reaching those that are lost and in darkness and far from God in this amazing city? Do you want to do that for your God? Do you want to be successful in, in helping other believers, other people that you love in this faith family? Do you want to be successful in helping them to really grow and change? Do you as a church want to be successful in displaying the glory of God to the nations that he has assembled together in Abu Dhabi? If so, if you want to be truly successful, you must know who we must be. So my, my final goal these last few weeks as your pastor is my heart's desire is to help you better understand the non-negotiable characteristics. And so hear me, this, this final series is the final non-negotiable, so cannot be debated, these are essential, so non-negotiable characteristics that you as a church must embrace. And if you will embrace these, and if you will then live in light of them, oh man, what are you going to see? What you're going to see is how much God can do through you. What you're going to see is more gospel success. If you'll embrace who we must be, then, then you will see real lives changed. And you will see God displaying his glory right here in your midst. 
So by the grace of God and through the empowering of his spirit, as we focus upon his word here together, I, I've been praying, I'll continue to do so, that you will catch this vision of who New Life Church must be. And so my topic for this morning, which is the first non-negotiable characteristic that must define this faith family. So for today, the first one is, you must be, who must we be? You must be God-saturated worshipers. You must be God-saturated worshipers. And so that's what this community of faith must be. Now, I am not talking about having a little bit of water sprinkled on you where you get a little bit wet, where your sleeve got a little bit wet because someone knocked over a cup at the, at the table and, oh, I got wet. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about being splashed or being a little bit wet. What I'm talking about is, have you ever gotten, got caught maybe in a storm? Where from your car into your house and just that short walk, you were soaked. Where the water, I know we're not Abu Dhabi, but we're not, anyone's not from here. And so maybe you remember a thing called rain from your home countries? where it's just pouring down, where it's really just raining and it's a storm, and then and you're caught in it, and you're just soaked, you're drenched. You remember that feeling? You're like, oh yeah, back when I didn't live in the Middle East. What I'm talking about is not having a little bit of Jesus splashed on you. What I'm talking about is being immersed, I'm talking about being soaked to the bone and being so immersed and so saturated in the mercy of God, in the love of God, and so deeply immersed through his spirit into a relationship with him that it consumes you, that you're saturated in God. This is who we must be. We must be God-saturated worshipers. And so this is the main idea for this morning, that God's redemptive plan has been and will be. So God's plan is to create God-saturated worshipers. This is God's plan, is to create a people. And it's always been that way, and we'll see it this morning. God's plan from the beginning was to rescue a people from their sin through the Messiah Jesus, and then those that he would rescue, he would then make them new, give them new life, and thus he would create a people for himself that would then see his glory, that they would then desire it, and then that they would treasure it, and that they would then live in the very presence of God, forever praising him. This is God's plan. It's been like that from the Garden of Eden. And so my hope is that we would be so saturated in the very presence of God, truly soaked and immersed in his love. And so today we're going to see what it means for your life today. What does this mean to be a God-saturated worshiper? And we're going to learn from this, and I'm praying, be inspired by this, from Mark chapter 11. So if your Bibles, please turn to the Gospel of Mark. We'll be in chapter 11 this morning. Mark 11, verses 1 through 11, describes Jesus entering into Jerusalem. 
Now, if you know the context, this is towards the end of Mark. This is towards the end of Jesus' life here on earth. This was Passion Week. This was his last week that he would be alive. And so beginning on Sunday, it would culminate with his, his death and burial. And, of course, resurrection one week later. And so this is when he was entering into Jerusalem for the very last time. And so if you remember when he is entering in, now this is also Passover week. Because you might remember that the weekend that Jesus died was a Passover weekend. And so what you're seeing is this is Passover week in Jerusalem. And they would come in with his death, burial, and then, of course, resurrection. So let's read Mark 11, verses 8 through 10, and see the scene of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Mark 11, verse 8. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And so they're praising him as the coming king, the son of David. And this is accurate description of Jesus. But understand the context. This type of parade, when you have someone coming in and people were huddled around and they're Crowds are cheering and praising. This type of parade was reserved for a victorious king who was coming in to town. And the, all the crowds were just cheering and praising him. So this is accurate because Jesus truly is the one true king. But the thing is, when Jesus came in, he wasn't riding in on a powerful horse, a, a, a horse of war. It wasn't like that. He came in on a small donkey. A donkey. Maybe you're thinking, really? I mean, a donkey, a small one I, I, in this context, would maybe be suitable for a hobbit. Or a small donkey might be suitable for small children at the carnival, just kind of going in a circle. But a small donkey was not suitable for a king. Not suitable. You would never have expected a king to be riding in on a donkey being celebrated as the coming king and the son of David. You see, Jesus does not fit into any of our human categories. What you see here is the king of glory who created the expansive universe simply through the power of his Word, he just spoke and the universe was created. He who has all authority, all power, all dominion, all wisdom, you see him humbling himself, riding on a donkey. Jesus is amazing because he doesn't fit into our normal categories. You see, Jesus is infinite majesty. And what you see with he who is infinitely majestic, you also see here in this text, completely humble. In Jesus, what you see is absolute sovereignty and authority. And yet, you see complete submission to the Father. 
In Jesus, what you see is all-sufficient, self-sufficient power. And yet what you also see is complete dependence on his Father. In Jesus, you see eternal wisdom. And then you see complete trust in the Father's will. So Jesus is so glorious that seeing him and understanding who he is, just getting a glimpse of him, it ought to leave us just stunned and overwhelmed and just bowing down in adoration and worship. And so the response to God revealing himself through Jesus ought to be worship. And so the response to revelation is worship. And so you see Jesus coming into town, being celebrated as the king, and he's coming in as a completely humble, submissive one who's coming in peace to bring us peace with God. If you continue in this story from coming into Jerusalem, Mark 11, verse 11, Jesus enters the temple. Says he arrived in Jerusalem and went into the temple. Now he goes in and he takes a look. He wants to see what's going on in the temple. And Jesus sees some things happening in his house. Remember, this is his house. This is for the glory of his father. And so Jesus is there and he sees some things going on that he doesn't really like, things that need to change things that are not glorifying to the Father, and yet Jesus doesn't do anything about it. He just, it was late in the evening, and so he just leaves Bethany to spend the night. So what you're seeing with Jesus is, even though there were things that had to be addressed, he's going to address them in his time, in his wisdom, in perfect timing. He sees, he knows, he cares, but he's also completely in control, and he's going to address the situation in his time. So same thing in your life. He knows what you're going through. He sees, he knows, he even maybe sees errors that need to change, and yet he is patient, and in his time, he will address them. You can trust his perfect timing. So verses 12 through 14 continues the same story. Now it's the next morning. He wrote in. Humbly and yet gloriously, he sees what's going on in the temple. He doesn't address it. He goes to get some rest. Next morning, verse 12 through 14, he's headed to the temple where he was the night before. But when he is going to the temple, in the distance, he sees a fig tree. Now, this fig tree was mature enough, large enough, had large enough leaves that from a distance, it had all the appearances of a healthy tree that should have been producing fruit. But when Jesus comes up right next to it to, to benefit, to be blessed from the fruit of this tree, he finds no fruit. The tree is empty. It's fruitless. It looked good from a distance. So on the outside, the tree looked good and healthy. But the lack of fruit is evidence that on the inside, the tree was dying. The tree was not well. And it would not be long before the outside of this tree would completely show the disease and the decay that was already there on the inside. 
And so he, on his way to the temple, he is using this fig tree as an example of what he's going to explain even further in just a moment. And he's saying this fig tree is giving us an object lesson of false worship and true worship. The fig tree had a purpose. God created the fig tree for one purpose, and its purpose in life was to produce fruit. And this fig tree was failing to accomplish its God's design purpose. It was not producing fruit. Likewise, we have a purpose, and we have been created for the purpose of worshiping God. A life that is marked by good fruit for Jesus is the evidence that on the inside, in our hearts, that we're alive and well, and we have his spirit at work, and we are truly this God-saturated worshipers. So this fig tree was just a picture of what it can look like to look good on the outside, but on the inside, not be anywhere near to God. So again, the main idea that we're looking at from this text is that God's redemptive plan is to create God-saturated Worshippers, not just on the surface, but completely soaked down to your soul, worshiping God. A changed heart that results in the externals being consistent with what is on the inside. So let's look at verses 15 through 19. Let's just kind of focus there for a few moments to see this truth more clearly of what it means to truly be a worshiper of the king. Let's read verses 15 through 19. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who, who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called the house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And so this scene directly led into Christ's crucifixion. This was the last straw. The leaders had enough of Jesus, and from this point on, the story begins to move very quickly towards Christ's betrayal, crucifixion, and, of course, in resurrection. So what you're seeing here in this text is profound and is describing, is revealing the glory of God and who we are supposed to be. So who must we be? We are to be true Worshippers, and so what you're seeing in this text, he's revealing what it what it means to have true worship. And so let's look at the these characteristics of true worship. Number one, true worship results in treasuring God's greatness. So authentic, genuine, so real God saturated worship. Number one will always result in treasuring God's greatness. I'm not talking about fake, external, surface religion that we do to impress other people that has all of the outward appearances of worship, like the fig tree and the religious leaders. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about something much deeper in your 
heart where you yearn for God. The people that Jesus was driving out of the temple on this day did not treasure the greatness of God. They were not true worshipers of the living God. But let's not be confused. These corrupted men were still worshipers nonetheless. They didn't worship the one true God, but they were still worshiping. Because God designed humans to worship. It's what we do. We worship. We can't not worship. We can't prevent ourselves from worshiping. So to be human is to be a worshiper by God's design. The most religious person is a worshiper, and the most secular atheist who has all these arguments that are foolish about how God doesn't exist, that atheist also worships. We all worship. This is how we know. The Bible tells us that God made us for himself. And so every single one of us is going to give our hearts to something, whether it's to God or whether it's to money or sex or power or another person, you name it, some sort of counterfeit. Because worship has to do with worth, what you value most of all. And so when you value something high enough that you will build your life around it, and all of us do that, we build our lives around something. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 15, verses 18 and 19, he says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Hear this. So with their lips, they sing the songs, they have the right words, they have all the language. They're in church on Friday mornings, so they, have, they look, so with their lips, they're saying all the right things, but their heart is far from me. And he says, in vain do they worship me. In vain. Religious, but their worship was in vain. It was a zero, so it was zero worship. Zero times anything is zero you can have two nothings. You can have a million nothings. It's still nothing. Zero. Vain. Empty. All the appearances results in zero worship. So it's about your heart valuing and treasuring God above all else. So what is worship, if you want a definition? So what is worship? True worship is valuing God above everything else. That's what worship is. It's evaluing or a treasuring of God above all else. So true worship can be seen on the outside with how we live, what we say, our actions reveal what we worship. And yet it's much deeper. That's where it starts. And so all of life ought to be worshipped. All of life ought to be expression of our love for Jesus. So your thoughts, desires, words, actions, all of it ought to be a reflection of your deepest desire for God to be glorified. And so worship is response. That's what it is. So worship is response to God being revealed. And so we see his majesty and then we respond with treasuring him so that he gets all the glory. 
which is the point of Friday mornings. Why do we, why do, we do this every Friday morning? And why is it that when we get here, and because we meet in the zoo, inevitably something is wrong most weeks, we just try to fix it very quickly. Like you have no idea behind the scenes what goes on for, for us to be able to even gather on Fridays. And guys like Bill and others on the, on the tech team, like today we come and the PowerPoint wasn't working and the projector didn't work and they're trying to fix cables. Why? Why, why was it so important even today mid-service to finally get the, the screens to function? Why is that so important? Because we want to be able to sing, and the words matter. They matter. It's not just about an experience with good music. It's about treasuring Jesus, and worship is the expression. And so we want to lead the church to be thinking and focus on Jesus in the worship gathering. It's all about what we are saying to him is an expression, an overflow of what's already inside. So it's all about the Word, and so we want to read the Word, and then we want to pray the Word. We want to sing the Word. We want to preach the Word, respond to the Word, treasure the Word, share the Word, spread the Word, because God reveals himself through his Word. It's all about God showing who he is and when he reveals himself in creation and primarily in redemption, what he's done for us with Christ dying for us, it changes everything. We respond with worship. So what do you value most? What gives you the most hope and meaning and comfort and true joy? Do you, do you really treasure the greatness of God? And so the people that you're seeing Jesus driving out he drove them out because they did not treasure God's greatness. It was just external with their own selfish agendas. So number two, true worship results in reflecting God's character. So it results in treasuring God's greatness, but also, secondly, reflecting God's character. Remember, this was Passion Week. Now, you can't imagine, but this was huge. Like, I went last month to Dubai to Global Village on like the second to last night, and it was packed. I don't know how many of you went, you know, over village, but you couldn't hardly even walk. Like there were just thousands of people all around just, just enjoying themselves, and it was a good experience. It made me think about just maybe a glimpse of what it may have been like during Jerusalem when on Passion, on this Passover week, I should say, what you had was thousands of people would all pour in to Jerusalem. And they would all bring their animals to be sacrificed during Passover. And so, so some historians like Josephus record that there were probably about 250,000 lambs that were being brought into Jerusalem just Passover week. So you have a quarter of a million lambs all over the place. And you have tens or even hundreds of thousands of people all in Jerusalem. It was chaos. You can even begin to imagine this scene. So picture all of these people, they're all in queues, right? Now, there wasn't any take your number, so I can only imagine the chaos that this was. And so you have all of these stalls there in the temple court where you can go and you can buy your animal. So, yeah, I'll take two lambs, please, so I can go offer to, to, 
to God a sacrifice or no, I'll, I'll take two pigeons or whatever. And so you can go and you could buy your sacrifice right there. And not only that, but people came from all over the, the, the known world, and so they had different currencies. So they had to go and, and go to the UAE exchange there in Jerusalem and exchange their currency for local currency to then go buy their animal to sacrifice to God as an act of worship. And so what happened there in the temple became big business. Religion oftentimes can become big business. You had all these people buying and selling animals and doing trade. This was a violation. This went against what the temple was designed to be. The temple was not a marketplace. The temple was the dwelling place of God with his people. The temple was a place to go and to seek God, to hear his word, to sacrifice, to worship him. The temple was all about worship. The temple was about displaying the glory of God. We read earlier, one of our deacons, Hunter, read from 1 Kings 8 when the temple was being dedicated. It was all about God's glory. And at the end, it says that the, the glory of God filled the temple. This is incredible. God's presence right there with his people. This is all about the glory of God being shown to the nations. It was not supposed to be a place to make a profit. And so Jesus comes in and he sees his father's house being desecrated this way. And oh, he got mad. He took the gloves off and was ready to go in the octagon and, and what does he do? He starts to turn over all the tables. Can you just, can you picture this? Thousands of people, they're all in line. And then here comes, here comes this guy, and he gets mad, and he's turning over tables, and there's coins flying everywhere, and there's pigeons flapping wildly, and there's lambs bleeding all over the place. And imagine the chaos, people shouting, hey, what are you doing? And, and just the, the absolute chaotic scene, and Jesus was cleaning house, cleaning his father's house. Those of you that have children, especially if you have multiple children, I'm sure have seen when, when you have several kids and one of them makes mom mad. And so there's mom and she's mad at one of them. And the other kids are just sitting quietly like, oh, no, you did it. You made her mad. And they just want to get out of there because mom is going to go do business with the disobedient child. Man, they made him mad for the glory of God. He was passionate for the holiness of God. And this was not holiness being displayed. Everything about the temple and those who were called to worship there was about reflecting the character of God. And that was not taking place. Think back to the Garden of Eden. What you have is heaven. You have God's presence right there with Adam and Eve. Pure joy available to them with no sin, nothing hindering them from enjoying their God. But they lost their taste for God. They, they didn't see his greatness and they wanted an idol instead. 
to be like God. And so they rebelled and did the most heinous possible sin. Like this is the essence of evil is losing your taste for God. They didn't want what God could offer them, which was himself. They wanted an idol instead. Like this is such betrayal of high treason. This is pure evil to say, God, I don't want you. And they rebelled, fell into sin, corrupted the world, and God judges them and casts them out of his presence, out of the Garden of Eden, and put a flaming sword that you could not go under, you could not hope to ever go back into the presence of God. The presence of God was blocked because God is holy. And he cannot be in the presence of those who are unholy. And so what you're seeing in the Old Testament is all pointing to what Christ would do because he provided for them in the wilderness a tabernacle where God could dwell with them right there and have his presence. And then later with the temple. And ultimately what you're seeing is it's Jesus bringing us back into Eden. Jesus himself going under that sword, dying for you and for me. But in the process, he broke that sword so that now the presence of God is open and available and Eden is no longer blocked. It's now open. And anyone who believes in Jesus can enter into the presence of God and go back into Eden. And we right now are the recipients. And this right here is a, it's a mini Eden. What you have right here, right now in this place is a picture of what Eden is. Is God's people loving each other, experiencing his presence. And it points to the final and ultimate rest that we will have with our final Adam, the second Adam, the victor who defeated the enemy, who broke the power of sin and the curse, who endured it for us. And so now we will be in the presence of God forever and enjoying him and each other. And the temple was a picture of this. The temple was designed to be a reflection of what God is doing in living with his people, dwelling with his people, and giving us his presence. So we have his spirit right now. He's here now in us and with us, and so we are the temple of God. He dwells in us. So you are the temple of God. And so you have the presence of God, and so true Worship results in reflecting the character of God because his Holy Spirit, who is just that holy, is conforming you into the image of the Son. This is glorious that we're a part of this. We don't deserve this. And God gives us this blessing minimal to reflect his glory. False worship is uninterested in the glory of God. Hear me, false worship is not interested in God's glory. False worship is unaware of the presence of God. And yet, true worship craves the glory of God. And true worship craves the presence of God. 
This is what Jesus came to do and the temple pointed to. So are you a God-saturated worshiper? Or are you like the men who were at their tables making some money that had all the outward appearances? If you would have asked them, they're like, oh, I'm serving God. I'm selling sheep. I'm selling pigeons. I'm exchanging currencies. I am facilitating the worship of God. All the appearances of true worship, but in their hearts, they didn't care about God's glory or God's presence. They wanted their own selfish end, which in this case was money. It looked good on the outside, but their heart was personal gain, self-centered agenda. So is your life a reflection of the holiness of God? I mean that. Does your life reflect God's character? Is your life marked by sexual purity? Is your life marked by integrity, kindness, forgiveness, mercy? The character of God, does it reflect that? So may we draw near to our God and be so saturated by his holy presence that we just begin to reflect him. Last, number three, true worship results in committing to God's mission. Committing to God's mission. So, so when we are truly worshiping him, what happens is we treasure his greatness. And then here what we're seeing is we commit to his mission. Even so, second of all, that we even reflect his character. So Jesus said, my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations. So his house is just for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. Now, the Jewish leadership set up this marketplace in, in the outer court that was designed for Gentiles or the nations. That's what the word means. So this court was not, not the biggest part of the temple, but it was a very important part of the temple. It was the only place that a non-Jew could enter and not die. It was the only place that someone who was far from God maybe who had heard about God but didn't know God, could go to this outer Gentile court and they could hear about God. They could seek him. And, and, and you would hope and pray and imagine they'd even put their faith in the one true God and become part of his people. So think about this. This court that was designed for the lost to come and seek God was no longer available to the lost. It was occupied by all the money changers and people selling the animals for the worship. And so what you're seeing here, understand, is God is a missionary. We serve a missionary God, and he wanted to save all nations. And even the temple, its outer court, was a picture of how God wanted to save all nations. It was a picture of his missionary heart. Remember, his plan is to create God-saturated worshipers, we could add, of all nations. It's always been his plan to save people from all nations. They were called to be a light to the nations. And so Jesus comes in, and he sees that this part of the temple that's supposed to be for the lost to come to know him is not available. And this made him angry. Like Jesus could not handle, he was so mad when he saw his people not caring about the lost. 
Man, he went crazy. Holy crazy, obviously. Complete control, and yet angry for God's holiness because the lost had no place to go and to learn about who God is and to become one of God's people. God's people didn't care about the lost. They forgot about the mission. Convenience was more important to them than the mission. Just think, picture a family. You have a father and his, his wife, and say they have their, I don't know, four kids, like my family. Four kids. And, and they're all traveling to Jerusalem for Passover. And the wife says, hey, honey, um, did you remember to bring our lamb for the sacrifice? And the father says, oh, that's just so much trouble having to bring our lambs from home. It's okay, honey. I'll just pick one up at the temple. It'll be easy. But they sell them at the temple, so I'll just get one there. Convenient. Awfully convenient for God's people to go and just pick one up right there at the temple rather than bring their own like they were supposed to. Convenience was trumping mission. Being comfortable was trumping the mission. They forgot their purpose. So when the people of God value convenience more than the glory of God, missionary and evangelistic zeal is lost. This is what happens. We have a city to reach here in Abu Dhabi. We ought not have any impediments or distractions that would prevent him from coming in here and being loved and hearing the good news of Jesus and how God loves them and wants to save them and give them joy. Jesus suffered for us so that we could experience the presence of God and become true worshipers. We were far from God. We were far from his presence, and Jesus has brought us near. So new life. You are here to reach those that are not here yet. We have a mission to accomplish, truly know Jesus and reach others so that they too can know him and come and worship him as well. And so last slide here, worship is the fuel for the mission. When a, a heart that is truly Worshiping Jesus in awe of him is a heart that's going to be stirred and that will desire to reach out and share with those that are lost and bring them in so that they'll know Jesus. And so worshiping Jesus is fuel for the mission. But worshiping Jesus is also the goal. It's the end of the mission. The lost don't worship God. They're lost. They're worshiping false gods, idols. And so so worship is the fuel, but it's also the goal so that people will come and join us and worship with us. It's all about worshiping Jesus. That's why we're here. That's why we exist. Who you must be. My prayer is that you will be a church of God-saturated worshipers for his glory. Pray with me.
Father, this morning as we look at your word and we see that you have made us to worship. We don't want to be like the money changers and those in the Gentile court who did not reflect your character, who valued convenience and personal gain and agenda more than your glory. We want to be a people that are so saturated with, with you that our lives just naturally overflow with reflecting your character and reaching those that are far from you. Father, we treasure your greatness and we pray that you would reveal yourself even further to us. We're hungry for you. We're desperate for you. And we just praise you that we have you, that we have your presence. We thank you that you have loved us and we love you too. And we pray in the name of Jesus.